Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. One great thing about independent media on the left is our eagerness to work together. That doesn't surprise me, really, because we're all essentially working towards the same ends, the same goals as the activists we interview here on the show. So collaboration and cooperation are the name of the game. And Kevin Tagovat of The Hoser, our next guest, was quick to agree to come on and share some of their collective's secret to success. Now, the team over there is small but mighty, and their output is astonishing. Not just talking about volume, either. Kevin discusses the effort that they put into producing those very intimate, accessible, and often enraging reports the hoser is best known for. One of the standouts from our discussion with Kevin is his team's commitment to centering the voices of the marginalized. Right? There's no guise of objectivity, uh, but these aren't opinion pieces either. This is top-notch journalism, and they've made sure it is all entirely free. Here on Blueprints, we often we talk about the need for a diverse amount of tactics and the approaches needed to work towards that political revolution. And everyone has a role to play. Uh, the good news is Kevin certainly seems to have found his. So let's hear more from him on how that work plays into the larger movement. All right. Welcome, Kevin. Uh, Santiago has told me a lot about you. He's in Toronto, so he gets to pick up the newspaper and whatnot. But can you introduce yourself for our audience at home? Yes, uh, my name is Kevin Tagabon. I'm one of the co-founders of The Hoser, which launched early 2021 publicly, but we were incorporated at the end of 2020, so we're a couple years old. It's uh, an organization that's uh, it's a not-for-profit journalism outlet in the greater Toronto area. We mostly do local reporting like about Toronto. There's obviously a lot of media in the city, but most of it doesn't really tell stories about the city itself. So we wanted to create something that would actually allow us to develop these sorts of trust-based long-term relationships with the communities that we report on uh, in, in and around the city. We've mostly focused on police violence, housing, labor, LGBTQ issues, um, indigenous issues, basically anything that would skirt sort of social justice issues, which really have uh, exploded in sort of mainstream recognition over the past five or six years, I would say, but they're the types of things that the people that I collaborate with have always cared about. And it's nice to be in a moment, in a historical moment, where all these crises also develop a certain care and attention from an audience that naturally uh, would be allied with the sort of storytelling that we want to bring forward. I'm also an editor at a physical newspaper that launched in October called The Grind. That is with uh, David Gray Donald, Philip Morgan, Fernando Arce and Shannon Caranco. Shannon Caranco is also one of the co-founders of The Hoser. She and I were really like the two people who started it. And since then we have brought on people from other um, journalism or communications or labor spaces that we know. One person from CWA, one person from QP, one person from TVO, formerly at The Star. Um, and yeah, so, you know, we're, I'm part of a couple of projects that have a very diverse composition and in terms of where the people come from. But generally everybody is either very interested in alternative media 
or in sort of political communications in those spaces. I'm also a frontline uh, retail worker. I at a unionized uh, location. I you know have to do that to make the to pay the bills. And honestly, on a personal level, I think that it's important for people who work in let's call them white collar industries. Uh, and I uh, here I'm specifically talking about journalism. I think it's important for people in this space to be still connected with experientially what it's like to be a worker on the ground if you're going to be telling those kinds of stories. I think it would be irresponsible for us to publish something like, this is how this nice landlord is making life easy for their tenants. And by the same token, I think it would be irresponsible for me to be writing about how difficult it is to be uh, working frontline during a pandemic and all of the sorts of struggles and uh, collaborations and friendships that come out of the camaraderie of a workplace while being isolated in some small NGO office or, uh, you know, the 20th floor of a building somewhere in a big city. So that's a little bit about my background. <laughs> Thank you. So the Hoser is a collective, Santiago is telling me, right? Yeah. So Shannon and I are the co-founders, which just really means like legally we're the co-founders. But uh, the way that we work is much more collaborative and horizontal. Santiago, before we started recording, you were talking about like why you wanted to get Kevin on here uh, specifically. What is it about the Hoser that kind of stood out for you? And the grind that, and how did you come across the grind? <laughs> oh, I mean, for me, I'm a journalism student right now, right? Um, studying at uh, Humber College Journalism. And when I look at all of the publications that I'm supposed to be looking at, right? You know, like the Star and, and ev all of the mainstream publications and adjacent to mainstream publications in the city, I don't really relate to any of the experiences. I don't find that people my age in general are very interested in the types of stories that they're writing and when I first came across the hoser I was like okay no this is a group of people who is writing about stuff that I actually want to know about that other people are not covering and I mean the very first time that I came across it was um I had been at a protest um at the vision 14 um Toronto Police Service in Toronto after the encampment clearing um, at Lamport Stadium. And that day was an absolute disaster. Um, and it broke out into violence instigated by the police. And I remember when I went home, I wanted to read, you know, what had been covered about it what was mainstream media saying what was their angle on this and I found almost no coverage and most of the coverage I did find was just parroting police press reports and then I found an article that Kevin wrote um, where the headline immediately starts with police violence which was complete you night don't see and day that very often. no it was complete night and day and you actually spoke to people that were there and it was actually good journalism that accurately reflected the events that happened that day. And I dug into more of the articles and it, and it was all very similar where there was stuff that people weren't talking about and you guys were talking about it. And for, that's exactly the kind of journalism that the city is missing. Kevin, in order to write those stories, you've got to get the trust of people to to talk, right? Especially at a demonstration like that. Um, and there's a lot of distrust around the media. You talked about building community trust and whatnot. Is that important in telling 
those kinds of stories, especially in terms of police accountability? Because that's not the only, you know, you said that's one of the focuses you have as well. Yeah, no, it's definitely essential. The I believe it was July 21st of 2021, the day that that Lamport stuff went down. Um, it's known in the unhoused community as Lamport 2, as far as I recall. There was Lamport 1, and there was also Bellwoods that happened um, in June and July. So it was sort of like part of a, a really, really violent summer against the unhoused community. And through that, before that, we were already reporting on housing. Uh, mostly my co-founder, Shannon Karanko, was developing those relationships with people in those communities from the beginning of 2021, around the time that we launched. But really, um, that was the day that I threw myself into it, like for the whole day, in a way that I don't think is replicable in mainstream media. It is very precarious to say like, okay, we need to raise funds and get support from the community and get smaller dollar donations and this, that, to pay our bills doing journalism. At the same time, that means that when something like this happens, I can stay there for eight, 10 hours or whatever, right? And I'm not going in there with a white van and a, and a, and a five thousand dollar camera and a fixer with me or a, or some or a handler. I don't move and operate the same way that these people do in mainstream media. And a lot of the people that work at these mainstream institutions, they have a much narrower view of like what the role of the press is than I do. They have a more liberal perspective as opposed to a working class perspective or a socialist perspective as to what the press is for. But there's a lot of people that are, have the same perspective as me. But just from structural for structural reasons, they can't they can't spend eight hours in one place. They have to write three stories that has to be three hundred words, and they have to be done by the end of the day. And if somebody's there with a camera uh, from that mode for forty five minutes, they're not going to see what happens from two p.m. to ten p.m. They're not going to see what happened all day long. They're not going to see how the escalation actually happened. How one side is giving speeches about community support and how we stand up for each other and how they're going to wait for their comrades who are detained to get information from their lawyers hours and hours and hours while the other side is bringing out millions of dollars of weaponry right and you can tell very you can tell very easily which side is doing what and like santiago said i was just writing about what actually happened there were uh, communications that came out later from the police um, I don't remember if it was immediately or if it was closer to the press conference that they had in September, that the unhoused community had in September outside of John Tory's office. But it was something like, you know, the demonstrators uh, brought weapons to the to the demonstration and they were very violent with their weapons. And we were the only place that said, actually, you know, we were there for eight hours. We reviewed thousands of photos from ourselves and from other places. And we can say with confidence that the only people that brought weapons were the Toronto Police Services. The CBC is not going to do that. Global News is not going to do that. And uh, it's irresponsible. So that sets it apart. And also based, also the, the concept of developing trust, it's not just time, it's like presence, right? Like it's one thing to have conversations over the phone with people and you get a certain level of, you get a certain level of um, intimacy and access to like what they want to tell you. But when you're there and it's a really precarious situation and people see that you're not leaving and you're talking to people and you're you're moving around and you're trying to get as many perspectives as possible there is a there is this feeling of like you're not an outsider and frankly i'm not an outsider i'm not a wealthy person i'm not somebody that is you know sitting around writing copy from a different city or a different country about what's going on here i'm somebody that's been entrenched in these spaces for many, many years at this point, whether it's labor or whether it's socialist organizations or other kinds of outreach that I did like, you know, five or six years ago. And so now when people see me doing this type of work, I'm not a stranger, right? Like I remember on, on May Day and on Labor Day, when I go up and down University Avenue, I don't shy away. I don't like walk to the other side of the street and say, oh, I don't want to be seen as part of the demonstration. No, like I'm here to do work. And also there's a lot of people here 
who are experts, either out of experience or formal education or both, that are going to tell me things that I otherwise would not hear. And those people are not going to tell that stuff to other folks. And I will also say that there were people at the demonstration at 14 Division that I went up to and identified myself as a journalist. And I said, listen, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. This is where I come from. This is, this is my, my MO here. And they said, you know, I'm, not, I'm really not comfortable talking to the press. I've had really bad experiences. And I don't say, like, oh, you know, what's wrong with you? Or, like, shy away or take it personally. I say, yeah, I know what you mean. That's totally okay. You know, because that does happen nine times out of ten. Yeah, I mean, like, that's got to be half the, the, the problem is getting folks to, to share their stories, but in a, an intimate way. And I mean, how is that sustainable, though, you know, staying there all day while you also work a retail job? Um, do most of your comrades at the cooperative also, you know, have to split their time like that? Yeah, I don't think there's anybody at our company that only has one job. I, if I include the grind, I have three jobs. So, yeah. <laughs> you can, and you can like, include it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not the only one who's had three jobs at different times over the past uh, two years. And I and for their cases, I don't include the grind. I mean, you know, two other jobs. Um, but, yeah, they everybody else has to, had to do other things to, to pay the bills. Um, I'm not, like, we do get paid pretty well for the work that we do, but it's, like, very time-limited, right? So, like... If I spend an entire day there and I write the story, it's paid at like probably double what the star or other places like other independent media pay, probably even more than double than what other other independent media pay. But I'm not writing a story like that every single day for 20 days. Right. So I have to do other things as well. And uh, yeah, the, the way that it's sustainable is, yeah, having a second job. And frankly, like we're hoping that we're building the scaffolding of something that will expand and grow and have a large enough audience to be sustainable such that it won't be necessary to have um, other forms of uh, employment necessarily outside of like maybe research, uh, you know, like going into a certain space long term to try to find out what it's actually like. Uh, but yeah, it is it is difficult to sustain. At the same time, I will say that because Shannon and I and the other people that work with us at The Hoser, because we have so much control over the editorial direction and over our imperatives and what's important, and because we have very similar perspectives as sort of like the political role of what a working class press is in a city like Toronto, we know what's important. So when something like this is happening, like I was not planning on being there that day. I was going to a job interview uh, at a different location that I didn't, I didn't even end up getting the interview. But... Uh, while I'm while I'm showing up to this place and like with my resume in hand, Shannon and the other people on my team are like, "This is happening right now. This is really really crazy. You need to go. You need to get over there if you can because this is like, you know, uh, like a city breaking moment." And instead of doing whatever I was gonna do that day, the sort of like little chores at my house or social engagements or whatever, I drop everything, run over there, and I'm like, this is what I'm doing today. And you know, similar things like that have happened in, in, on other days where we budget a few hours to be somewhere and it actually ends up being like nine hours. And it's frankly very rewarding because there's a certain level of control over your work. You don't feel alienated from what you're creating. You feel like you've put yourself exactly where you should be. And Shannon has reflected this to me too so many times over the past few months. The times that we feel the best about the work that we're doing is when we're out there doing like hands-on reporting or hands-on photography, like doing the interviews ourselves, like actually practicing our craft in a way that makes us feel very much connected to what we're creating. I feel like hearing all of this and being in journalism school, like the, the contradictions are very apparent, right? Because they try and teach you from the very first day, you know, that if you're a journalist, you have to be like completely separated from what you're covering 
that you're not allowed to stand up against injustices, that you're not allowed to protest, that you're not allowed to have these connections, that you have to be as objective and balanced as possible. And and they say that, and then they turn around and parrot a police press report, right? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on like that idea of objectivity? Is it outdated, and is it really doing these stories justice, this whole like middle ground fallacy of it all? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a few different things. One of them is really like a much broader than a problem in the press. I think it's just a problem in uh, North American politics, which is that we have erased the socialist left from discourse entirely. The majority of the people in North America see the political spectrum as running from conservative to liberal. So you'll hear people say stuff like, oh, yeah, Bernie is the most liberal candidate in the in the DNC race. And I was just like, that is just, just incorrect. Like, it's it's not only are you not being objective, like, you don't know what you're talking about and you're writing for ABC News or CNN or whatever and you don't know the meaning of these words. Uh, so that's just, like, professional ignorance at, the le- at like, six-figure salaries. Um, so, like, breaking, bringing it down to the press and the idea of objectivity, yeah, I think there needs to be, like, a certain level of, uh, a certain level of professionalism around this stuff, but th- that's different from trying to force objectivity onto a narrative where it doesn't exist. The Toronto Police Services and the unhoused community are a perfect example. There are thousands of people who don't have housing in the city, and there are thousands of people in this city, and a lot of them who don't live in this city, who are paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to act as an enforcement mechanism for capital in the city, the Toronto Police Services. Those, uh, those two institutions, and obviously the unhoused community is not an institution, but you know what I mean? Like These two groups of people, the TPS versus the unhoused community, have an inordinately different level of power. Like, it's as extreme as possible. The most well-funded institution in this city versus the most precarious people in this city. I don't understand how anybody could enter a space saying that they want to write a story about this and look at these two spaces and say, these are equivalent, they deserve equivalent space and equivalent attention. If the Toronto Police Services has somebody that they're paying six figures to pair up six other people's comms from inside a building like that, then there should be 10 times more attention paid to what the unhoused community is saying and much more granular information coming from them. And that takes time. Obviously, again, a lot of the media workers in these major institutions, they would probably want to do this and they would probably agree with me if I was having a coffee with them and having this conversation, but they cannot. They cannot because of the structural limitations that exist in the press. And this has been the case for decades and decades, like since before my parents were born, you know? Um, but it's not like it's gotten better in the internet age. The, pr- the press has shrunk so much. And you see people who are former staffers for the liberals or the conservatives, uh, you know, going in and out of the press over the past few decades with no semblance of like, oh, this person should not be writing about this, or, or people who are married to conservative lobbyists being on major networks. There's no, they, they just keep their blue check mark. They stay doing their sort of professional stuff at the top levels. And people like us are the ones who are told, like, you need to behave in the way that they behave. If they're not setting the example either, then we need to set a new one. You've, you've hinted at it a few times, but you've not been able, or not able, but we've not let you articulate it fully about the role of the press. So, like, clearly you have an inherent political slant to what you're writing. You've talked about, you know, making space for socialist and progressive ideas. Is that your role in the larger movement? Is that part of the hoser's creation and, and purpose? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, it was never really, like, explicit in terms of an ideological affiliation. Um, I mean, that's where I come from in terms of my intellectual upbringing and the tradition that I appreciate most in terms of my political analysis. But 
really, I think part of it is just the times and part of it is like the international diaspora in Toronto. Like the people that I met at journalism school are a very diverse group of people. Uh, some of them come from different countries. Uh, you know, Shannon's from Montreal and she had a lot of exposure to the, she did a lot of reporting on the far right and that informed a lot of her sort of uh, motivations around what the, what the press could do and what the press does in terms of like exposing malefactors in our society. It's funny, like the, the phrase, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, like that's a phrase that gets parroted at journalism school all the time. And I'm honestly kind of surprised that, that, <laughs> that at the high level journalism instructors that have been doing this for decades still say that. And I should say, like I did have some very good instructors and there were other ones that I wasn't as big a fan of. But the, the fact that they say that and then don't see the role of the press as actually like, yes, you should be going after the most powerful institutions with all your might and you should be as generous as possible to the people who are most precarious. That's what it says to me. That's what I see as the role of the press. So whether that's amplifying a social movement that otherwise would have no attention paid to it, or being extremely skeptical of the most powerful and most aggressive institutions in this city and in this country, um, that's, that informs that role, I think. And, and it informs our coverage. Like We pay more attention to things that we think should be paid attention to because necessarily we see them as being places where these people deserve more power and they don't have it. And oftentimes, as, as you, we are both very familiar, the people who are outside of these formal systems of power or like trying very, very hard to either reform them or overthrow them are the experiential experts. They are the people who know the most about what's happening. And they are the people who will give you like a heartfelt story about someone they know or something that happened themselves that is far more compelling than sort of cold clinical research that you will see in, in the mainstream press. Obviously, expertise is very, very important. There's a lot of things wrong with universities, but I still think that there are people in those spaces who do very good work, and we do consult with them and use them as sources very regularly, and I'm glad to have those relationships with them. But that's a, different type of, um, that's a different type of power than what people are trying to organize on the ground. It's funny you say that because I got into a discussion today um, online in talking about the difference between like advocacy and expertise and how that lived experience should 100% qualify you as an expert in terms of, you know, homelessness or, um, you know, this particular conversation centered around being autistic and as being an autism expert, just by way of lived experience. It's it's crucial to me that you, you folks include those voices, but also go back to the systemic issues that uh, lead to these kind of newsworthy events, right? So like you'll so we'll give the press a little bit of credit. Sometimes they will talk about the shelter system being over, you know, crowded or the fact that these folks are living precariously, but very rarely do they go at, you know, capitalism. Do you are you guys that explicit when you talk about these issues and do that political education that you know, you kind of hinted we're lacking here, uh, both in journalism and the general public, right? Like, it's hard to explain and make the connections for folks so that they understand why the issues you're covering are particularly important and and the voices that you're including are important. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we're explicit about it, really. Um, but I think that's honestly because the reporting that we do is not analytical. And this is another thing that, this is another thing, I, I mean, it is analytical, but it's not capital A analysis. This is another thing that we wanted to avoid because 
I there's a lot of outlets in Canada that I really love uh, that are independent media outlets and that do or and you know in the states and in the UK and, and beyond that do a lot of really good analysis uh, from a left perspective or an anarchist perspective or a socialist perspective, but it's not like on the ground reporting for uh, on the day that the thing happens. And that, I think, is what's missing from this ecosystem. There are outlets like Press Progress that do this kind of stuff, uh, or the TIE, or, you know, Ricochet. There's many others. Um, and they do, like, reporting, reporting. But it's also, like, you know, if you talk to them about their, their perspectives and their backgrounds, I don't think it would be very different from where I'm coming from. But it's not in the copy. Because there are other spaces that already do that. And I think, frankly, like, the the left media sphere in, in the North American, like, in the Anglo-American sphere, I think leans very heavily towards analysis, which I think is really not where most working-class people are. If you want to meet working-class people where they are, they do care about the news. They're very skeptical of it. But they're not the types of people who go on Verso Books every few weeks to see what's on sale. They're not the types of people who, you know, have, like, the flags that I have on the back of my wall or have read the books that I've read because, because that interests me. They're people that need news on a regular basis. So we're not... We're not tying all the things together and explaining like the you know this is a, an effect of capitalism, but yeah, like capitalism is the root of the majority of the of the ills that we suffer in the systems that we live in, and that's what we see on the ground. That's another reason why we wanted to be hyper local about this too, right? Because if you start to go to the like the national level stories, it becomes a little bit more opaque. Uh, if you're not already sort of familiar with an analysis of, of like a structural analysis of capital and it also makes it more difficult to connect the dots like the F-35 fighter sale recently right a lot of us are trying to like popularize correctly popularize the idea that that money could have easily gone into healthcare or could have easily gone into housing that's correct at the same time it's sort of difficult for somebody to feel that on the ground until they actually see oh, this person is actually unhoused, like, this is my neighborhood, or, like, I've gone through this neighborhood, I see the effects of this directly. So that's the type of gap that we're trying to fill in in Toronto. And I hope that there's people in other cities who would see that it's important to do that, too, because I do think that that's kind of what's missing from, again, the sort of left media ecosphere. Who knows, maybe you'll end up with uh, an Alberta chapter. <laughs> that would be great. Um, I wanted to ask, because you mentioned... Um... The Hose is not the only project you work on. There's also The Grind, right? Mm -hmm. I actually... Uh, Pull it out. Copy. Yeah, I have the copy awesome. here. <laughs> this copy, which I got uh, from Jerk King near Bathurst and Bloor in Toronto, which was like the best place to run into this possible is a Jerk King <laughs> because that's like the m most working class thing I can imagine. But uh, tell us about uh, what this paper is and uh, why you guys uh, started it. Yeah, so, you know, there was a lot of love for many, many years for Now Magazine, and as it as it was falling apart and, you know, kind of going under last year, um, we wanted to create something that would fill in that space. Uh, and so, you know, David Gray Donald, I got to give him a lot of credit. He really he sort of spearheaded the idea. And uh, he and Phil Morgan and Fernando Arce, who were two other writers and journalists, um, they joined me and Shannon and, and Dave and you know, we decided we wanted to launch something. And we started having these conversations in the summer, but it, it really sort of ramped up in September because it, it it seemed to us like it would make a lot of sense to launch it in tandem with the Toronto elections, the municipal elections. Uh, that's, you know, elections in, a, in like a capitalist liberal, liberal democracy are not necessarily the way that I see social change being most effective. <laughs> most politics here, happens here. between elections. Yeah. Most politics happens between elections and there's not there's not that much power at the ballot box 
at the same time, it is the time where most people are willing to have conversations about politics. We have created a society in which there's so much taboo around talking about politics, and the few times where it's more acceptable is around these bourgeois elections. So we wanted to create a paper for working class people, commuters, people around the city, uh, that is accessible to them in a way that just Twitter and Facebook and social media stuff just simply isn't. I don't know if these statistics are still correct, but when I was in journalism school, so I started J school in 2018 and I finished in 2020. I, it was a master's degree, so it was just two years at TMU. And at the time, one of our instructors told us that, yeah, there's only like only about 7% of the population or something less than 10% of the population is on Twitter. And if you just see the way that people talk about it on the news, especially in my spaces, like talk about it in the professional press or talk about it among organizers and activists, it's sometimes, especially like between 2016 and 2021, it really felt like, Everything in the world is happening on Twitter. Nothing else matters, and like that's the primary. <laughs> Especially source. during COVID, right? Like that yeah. was that was your world. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, if you step back a moment, you realize like nine out of ten people aren't there. So where are they? So you know, there's people Facebook. on the TTC. There, yeah. I mean, Facebook's great too. Like you know, it's good and bad. Like there's things I hate about it, and there's things that I have we have used to popularize these sorts of ideas. But you know, we wanted to access people in a completely different way. And the fact that, again, a city like Toronto is so big and has so much media, but for it not to have, like, one free newspaper that writes about the things happening in Toronto and in Ontario more broadly, it's just absurd. So we wanted to fill that gap. The five of us got together. We very quickly put together the first issue. We have friends at a lot of different publications, just from the nature of, like, where each of us comes from, uh, the five of us. So we were able to pull together a lot of republications, original work, photography. We knew designers that Dave was friends with that were able to, like, work with us on a very tight schedule um, to, to put it all together. And, yeah, the first issue, we got pretty good feedback. Uh, we had, I think it was 40,000 copies or something like that, maybe wow. 30. Yeah. Yeah, there was there there was tens of thousands of copies. The second issue too, there was th thirty thousand copies uh, that went out in December, and we're working on the third issue now, which should be out in February, uh, probably right after the after the city budget f is finalized. So yeah, we wanted to create a, again another piece of media in the city that's completely unique that doesn't exist in other ways, and that and that has some of. Um, is accessible to people in terms of it being free, but also physically, like, existing out in the world in a way that, you know, social media platforms for many, many people are just not the way they want to get news. You talked about some of your teammates, like, keeping you in the loop and, you know, letting you know something's happening then and now. Like, how do you keep ahead of the news in the way that you do? Because before you came on, Santiago was like, Kevin is everywhere. You know, you show up <laughs> to a protest, you're going to see Kevin. And, like, no wonder he sees you because you're there for eight hours. So everyone's going to run into you. That, I'm sure, helps to get you to have that familiar, trustworthy face that you, you you spoke about. But, like, how do you do that? Especially these aren't mainstream kind of events. They, mm -hmm. these, these are kind of purposely hidden sometimes from us, you know. And so what's your secret to <laughs> keeping your ear to the ground? Yeah, I mean, it's a few different things. But, you know, having a, a team of collaborators that actually like quite like each other and are just willing to throw anything at the wall, and we're just like, yeah, let's go do that. Okay, sure, we have time. We're like, no, damn, like we all have to work. We can't go there. Um, but honestly, most of it again comes back to like long-term trust-based relationships. Like, there's people that reached out to me in the past couple of weeks who said, hey, Kevin, like we need to, we we want to have journalist presence at this thing that's going to be happening. 
and I can't tell you what it is. Like, we need to have a coffee. That that's that conversation doesn't happen unless you've known this person for a very long time, right? And um, same, th especially in organized labor. Like, I know a lot of a lot of people in organized labor, and it's probably no surprise to yourselves or your audience that there's an overwhelming amount of socialists in organized labor compared to any other sort of um, any other sort of official space that isn't like a grassroots grassroots space. So a lot of those people are people that I've known for four or five, six years, or people who have introduced me to other people that they know in those spaces um, that I haven't known for very long. But because of the way that we meet, like if you meet somebody at a picket line and they're like, oh, yeah, it's Kevin, instead of being like, hey, there's this journalist who wants to talk to you. It's a very, very different way of meeting somebody. And so that connection gets developed more quickly such that people will send me information or send me uh, comments or send me images that otherwise they probably wouldn't have trusted me with. And it's the same thing with people in other spaces. Again, like Shannon developed very early on, Shannon developed very good relationships with people in the unhoused community in 2020 and 2021, such that they were inviting her, uh, they were inviting her to events, like very informal small community events, like sacred fires and things like that, that they would never want another reporter at, and they definitely wouldn't want reporters taking pictures. And you know, when she's there, they're talking to her, they're like, yeah, you can take a picture here, let's sit down, talk about this, talk about that. Um, so yeah, I, I guess that's kind of how we stay ahead of it. And it's also like, I don't know if we necessarily stay ahead of mainstream media all the time, but I do think that the, the, what we produce is completely unique um, because of those connections that we've built with people. On top of that, I have been in and around these social justice spaces for like, I don't know, seven or eight years at this point. And there's a lot of people who I knew when I was in my mid-20s. I'm 31 now. There's a lot of people that I knew that I met in my in my mid 20s who now have gone on to do whatever they wanted whether it's their employment lawyers or their editors in a different province or their organizers in their union or all these kinds of things and it's not uh, it's kind of like a friend reaching out or like somebody that you trust reaching out when they send you something even if it's someone that I haven't talked to in 12 months because we remember what it was like like five or six years ago when we were having these conversations about like we wish the press was like this we wish there were more lawyers doing this we wish there were more organizers doing that um, so yeah that that uh, I hope that I'm not misreading it that it seems to me like we come the people that are on in this company come top of mind to some of these people in these spaces and also, again, having been involved in this for so many years means that it's not foreign to me to see all these new coalitions like racial justice coalitions or anti-police, uh, you know, organizing efforts coming out this month, for example, and putting out their communications and me immediately seeing them like basically the day they're created, because I don't need to like go find them. I've already been following these people for years. Santiago, was there another article that you wanted to ask Kevin about? Well, I mean, I have definitely one uh, off the top of my mind and first of all i want to give a shout out to eric wickman who is also uh the producer of uh your show uh short circuit mm -hmm. and he wrote an amazing article the myth of affordable housing in toronto uh where in the article he talks about how he went through and looked at all of the data on kijiji listings and found only six in the entire city uh, that would qualify as affordable for somebody um, earning minimum wage in the city. Um, can you tell me a bit about uh, that article and that kind of work? Because I haven't read anything like that anywhere else. Yeah, that article got a lot of traction, and I think part of it is because of what you're describing. People had not read that somewhere else. And there's a lot of subterranean rage among people in this city that, you know, it it's not really visible until something speaks to it directly. 
and then it gets a lot of traction. And that's kind of what we were anticipating with this story, but it got it got much more attention than, than I expected, which I'm very happy about. Eric is someone that's been on my radar for years, too, at this point. He's also the producer of Big Shiny Takes, which is part of the Harbinger Media Network, where there's tons of other lefty podcasts. Uh, honestly, that's kind of where, when you said there might be a chapter in Alberta someday, I, would, I immediately thought of the people in Edmonton <laughs> and Calgary making podcasts for that network. Uh, but yeah, so we I had think Jeremy Appel after, on here earlier. Yeah, Jeremy's yeah. wonderful. Like he's a friend, and you know the, the anyway. There's lots of people out, out west who are who are doing great work. So yeah, they uh, he came on my radar through that network and through his show, and I didn't realize he was in Toronto until we started the company. But I reached out to him. I don't know, maybe a year ago or something, and we just sort of um, had a drink with me, him and Shannon, and we decided, you know, if we if we launch a podcast, we'd love for you to be our producer. So that's how we developed that professional connection. But we started getting along pretty well. Uh, through and beyond that and in the summertime he so he also does web development and he knows some coding uh, I shouldn't say some like he, he knows quite a bit now and he's continuing to improve his craft uh, so he pitched this a story about just exactly what it turned out to be like let's scrape all of let's scrape everything off Kijiji and I'll put it into something that will show us like how many affordable units exist for minimum wage workers in Toronto and we knew that the results would be like <laughs> enraging and you know it comes out he just you know, writes the copy, talks to a couple of experts, and they point to sort of the malefactors that do point more to the, you know the structural problems or the, or the problems of capitalism that are intersecting with housing. But really, like the front and center is the data. It's just the hard information. It's just like the real reporting, and he has the skills to be able to do that from a data journalism perspective. Um, so yeah, I think it was very effective, and I think and I think his his also his like sort of political analysis and the people that he's connected with allowed him to put together the story in a way that wasn't just a few graphs but actually had some color in it and 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 spoke to the people's uh spoke to people's feelings as to why these problems exist in Toronto. And it was so digestible too, you know, it was did you see, you know, that those what it was at six apartments and it was easy conversation to kind of broach with folks because I even had someone talking about it at the bus stop up here in York region um in terms of being a tangible measurement of how bad the housing had gotten, right? You can talk about it, you can give all these numbers, but to like be able to show the actual availability to folks that, you know, have that kind of relatable wage or, you know, are looking for that that price range in terms of affordability, it was just really easy to talk about. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, you talk about it coming from a data perspective, but it didn't read like that. You know what I mean? So um, mm -hmm. it was, yeah, just really digestible. I think that's part of what stands, it makes your content stand out as well. You know, and I think when you're appealing to the working class, that's that's important that it's really accessible language and storytelling. And, you know, when you're including that much lived experience, I can't help but come across, I guess. Uh, mm -hmm which is which is refreshing because yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah somebody goes like who even reads a newspaper anymore i mean th because they're not free not because we don't appreciate the you know print in our hand and what that can afford folks especially commuters right mm -hmm. but um that paywall is often a real barrier to news and and right now the right wing has a lot of free media and you know we have a lot of you, you mentioned a lot of left uh, wing uh, independent journalists, but in terms of like really accessible mainstream stuff, it's it's all behind a paywall. So, I you have the free paper. Is any of your content behind a paywall? Like, do you, and how do you resist doing that? I mean, while being sustainable. Yeah, uh, none of our content is behind a paywall, Yay. as far as I remember. The podcast is free. 
We don't have any bonus content that was paid for. We don't have any articles that have been paywalled. No, I don't, I don't think we've ever done that. Like, I'm just trying to rack my brain to make sure that I'm being accurate here, but I don't think we've ever paywalled anything. Um, the, yeah, so the sustainability is difficult. Like, obviously, we, we need more donations. We need more support. We need to have more events. We need, always need to be we're constantly in this fundraising uh, churn. You guys but, had a party. Uh, yeah, we did, and we've, we've done stuff like that before, and, you know, it's good for exposure. It's good for new audiences and stuff like that, too, but it also is good to... to um, to, to bring in funds like we had a trivia night in August or September around a labor story that we did that uh, Megan Kinch did for us they worked with the Green Line and ourselves the Green Line's another independent media company um, and Rabble also worked with us on that but yeah uh, it's uh, yeah it's uh, it's it's something that we didn't want to do like paywalling anything and honestly it wasn't very controversial at, it, at the very beginning Shannon and I were like do we want to do that and both of us were like no and then when we brought on the board of directors like it was like everybody was on the same page there was really no idea that we would want to keep things away from people in terms of paywalling and I also think that I mean hopefully this won't be the case that we, when we become bigger we'll, we'll start doing it but I don't think it's easy to convince people if you have an, a very small audience very early on that you half of your content or portions of your content are behind a paywall especially if you have the sort of political perspective that I have like the people who are spending money on on media um, people who are spending money on media are, are doing so because they can and that necessarily affects who your audience is right we want it to be accessible to everyone and those who contribute to contribute to us financially of course we're like eternally grateful and it's it's really really good and it's mostly small dollar individual donations not not surprising um, but yeah we didn't want to be a place where people would be interested in our political perspective and might experientially agree with it but can't access it because their experiences are such that they don't have money for this we can relate 100% we often feel bad because our patrons you know there are no perks um, except you know, one little channel on our Discord <laughs> that's just for them. But, you know, we we don't put any exclusive content there either. So it's just out of the, you know, kindness of their hearts, but not the expectation of anything exclusive. And I think, yeah, that's the kind of audience folks like you and I appeal to anyway, hopefully. And um, But I did want to ask you that because it is... It's never been a question for us either, but it just seems to be the expectation of often and but no we talk about sharing knowledge and what and and how that that has to be completely barrier free and and the stories that we amplify we couldn't imagine putting behind a, a paywall either but yeah the sustainability and and you want to have growth as well so um yeah it can be a, a stumbling block for some of the smaller media outlets if we can call ourselves that yeah i remember when uh in, in my first week of J school, uh, one of the professors, you know, asks how many people have subscriptions to major publications in Canada and not a single person raised their hand. And I remember my professor was very annoyed about that. And J school, like, that's journalism school. Yeah. 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 Sorry. I, For those who don't know the slang. <laughs> completely <laughs> forgot to clarify that. But, um. You know, like my professor was annoyed at that. You know, why are these journalism students not having subscriptions? And then, you know, I mean, really the answer is why is the content not being written for a young audience? Where are young people then getting their news if not? 
And, you know, for a lot of young people in Toronto, unfortunately, that ends up being places like Six Buzz, right? Where they don't really have journalistic standards at all. Um, and there's a lot of very questionable things uh, that get posted there. But they have a much larger audience of young people than any publication and all the publications combined in the city. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what. What do we do about that? I guess is is the question. Like, how yeah. do you how do you fight against that? How how do we get information to these audiences that are not being reached? Yeah, it is it is like the problem of the press now. I think, um, but a lot of what we're doing, I think, in this generation is trial and error. And I think in a few years we will see what worked and what didn't. What my company is doing is assuming that if we do excellent work that speaks to people who weren't spoken to before in our storytelling and in our narratives, that we will develop a large enough audience that we will have independent support from the audience itself in a way that's not just a one-way street financially like them sending us money, but is also a structural check or an accountability, uh, an accountability mechanism between ourselves and the audience. And not just in the sense of like, oh, I didn't like that story, I'm not going to pay anymore. But the fact that we're hyper-local being like, you saw me on a picket line this week, and now I'm at this demonstration or this press conference that week. You can come up to me and say like, hey, what happened here? Or like, what was the problem here? Or whatever. I think that, I mean, my theory, and I think broadly our theory is, if people feel like they're stakeholders in this company or in this project that we're doing, that they're more likely to sustain it long-term, even if they have, even if they don't have much money to sustain it with. And also just like, pop like sharing our our stuff like word of mouth all that kind of stuff it means a lot it's it's not just it really isn't just like marketing business speak like word of mouth is very powerful and people believe in uh people believe in the products that are recommended to them much more than any other way so whether that's sharing something on social media or whether that's you know somebody at some demonstration pointing us out and saying like yeah you can talk to this person or yes they they do this kind of work or yeah that guy does this uh, i think that matters the other thing about the support angle is that um, traditionally the press was like heavily reliant on big advertisers, and they, I mean they still are in some sense, but it's kind of evaporating. And I don't think that they have solved the problem either, because if they had solved the problem, they would all be doing the same thing. They don't all have the same model. Some of them get government funding. Some of them rely more on advertising than others. Some of them rely on paywalls, but not advertising, or a combination of the three these three of these things. Um, so yeah, I don't think that they've cracked the nut either. And uh, frankly, like when you see the sales of Now or the Toronto Star or other institutions like that, like sort of hopscotching between different owners over the past five or ten years, it's not because these are, in my opinion, it's not because these are places that the the new ownership wants to make some grand spectacular new media project for the future. They're vanity projects. Like having a newspaper under your belt is like having a basketball team or like owning some stadium or something like that. It's a vanity project for wealthy people. And, uh, you know, there might have been more cachet around that in previous generations, but old money still walks like old money. And new money imitates old money, uh, their habits and their proclivities. And so they're, I don't think that they necessarily are going to find the solutions that might exist in the editorial room or in the reporter's pool because those aren't the people that are being listened to. It's capital. That's how, those, are the, those are the places that are going to move and shake these spots. And we are doing a completely different experiment along with a lot of our friends in, in independent media to see what works. What doesn't work? <laughs> what doesn't work? 
Um, in terms of what doesn't work for edit, for my editorial standards, what doesn't work is being beholden to uh, big money uh, in, in the way that you know traditional newspapers have been for a long time. And what doesn't work also is being extremely close to power. Um, the way that, like, I mean, I think oh, a yeah. lot of people in our generations were, like, I, let's say between 95 and 2010, there were so many formative moments around the press where people saw a problem happening, the press going in, like the, the most vaunted institutions in the press going in and trying to find out what's happening, and coming out and reprinting lies from the, high, from the highest levels of power. Of course, the big, biggest example of this is uh, is the mainstream papers in, in the United States and the mainstream outlets uh, around the Iraq War, just completely fabricating narratives about weapons of mass destruction, resulting in the deaths and displacements of millions and millions of people in the Middle East. That happens to this day. Like there will be people who die tomorrow uh, as a consequence of what was printed in newspapers and what was on television channels in 2003, and many of us went through that and felt that sort of lie. Uh, uh, you know that skepticism being developed within us, and I think a huge chunk of us too. Uh, I'll admit I'm part of this too. Watch the way that the Obama, uh, the early Obama years, were covered by the media as this sort of new age in American democracy, and like all this progress is going to come about, and all these wonderful things are going to happen. And not only did that not happen, uh, and not only did you know his centrist liberal. Um, political views become very, very obvious, and his establishment political views become very, very obvious, I'll remind the audience that Barack Obama presided over the largest transfer of wealth away from black families in modern American history. He was the first president to drone strike an American teenager, an American citizen who was a teenager. Uh, and he also passed the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012, which repealed Posse Comitatus of 1895, which now means that federal forces, milita uh, militarized police, can use their, can act on domestic soil. I don't know if people remember, but all of those scary images in 2020 of Trump sending in, sending in the troops, all these masked men with no markings and all of that, Obama gave him that baton. So let's, let's be honest about what he did. Was, was what I just said a part of the central narrative of the mainstream press? No. This is a savior who is defending us from the Tea Party and the crazy Republicans and all that. So again, a lot of us are coming of age around this time and just seeing all of these lies or mistruths or hidden truths c coming through the mainstream press and we just think to ourselves, okay, like, what can we trust? It's not a coincidence that Black Lives Matter and the Occupy movement burgeoned under Obama's second administration because those were the people who were like, actually, we cannot fix things through the channels that exist because the channels that exist are the reasons that we got here. And that is also something that informs the creation of new media, I think. I like when you were speaking about um, that reciprocal kind of relationship you wanted to eventually build with your audience and how a lot of your approach is speaking truths not normally spoken, but also speaking to people that are normally glossed over or not you know, treated as the target audience or, or the market, because I think that's a big problem with politics as well and the political parties, and they fail to build those relationships. And often it's it's all of them going after that same target market, fighting over that like 40% of people who are already politically engaged or, you know, the 10% of people already on Twitter, you know, and forgetting about everybody else. And it's so refreshing to hear um that type of approach. And I think it's 
hugely potential, right? Because there's just like so many folks completely untapped or tuned out and there's got to be a way to draw them back in to get them interested in the political and talking about it again in between election cycles and really accessible kind of writing and and uh, kind of keeping up with the times, too, because all the different platforms and, and ways people digest. I mean, you've got it all right. You've got audio, you've got print, you've got a website. And um, that's got to be a huge plus, right? Expanding into all of those mediums and yeah, drawing in and folks that um, we need, right, for this political revolution. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, I think I, I just wanted to echo what you're saying about the political parties and the sort of narrowness of the vision. Like every every time, especially in American politics, but it happens to the sort of poll chasing, like cha- like chasing, going after opinion polling and trying to reflect what people are already saying. It always skews conservative or, or it always skews rightward. There was a poll that the Toronto Star put out and I don't remember which institution did it, but it was one of the major one of the major polling institutions in Canada. But they found that a majority of uh, a majority of people in Canada wanted taxes increased on uh, people so, to fund a Green New Deal. And when they were asked specifically if they would want tra- taxes increased on the rich, the numbers go even higher. And it includes a majority of conservatives. I think it was 51% of conservatives. Did, do, do the conservatives then chase after that type of policy? Do the liberals then chase after that type of policy? Any of the parties? No, they don't. They it will sort of like clap pat themselves on the back that they understood what happened and they'll move on from it because of course the interest that exists in the companies that are the majority of our economy resources and real estate uh, they don't want to be they don't want to be living under a government that is going to take them on directly and say actually like we need to take some of your money uh, because we need to create a different kind of society Franklin Roosevelt as far as I remember famously like when he met with his cabinet and all these business leaders in the early 30s, and remember, this is 15 years after the Russian Revolution. He met with all of them and he said, if you don't give the people some of your money, they will come and take all of your money. That is not something that is understood today, that sort of like rage and that sort of sense of injustice. It's not popular among people because we're so isolated in ways that we weren't 70 or 50 or even 30 years ago. A lot of spaces, whether it's churches or the proverbial bowling league or book clubs, all these kinds of things that were sort of a normal neighborhoods, like neighbors knowing each other, all these things that were normal parts of society decades ago have evaporated. And you see this alarming trend, especially among young men in North America, where so many young men don't have friends or they have one or two friends. That is a recipe for disaster. In the 30s, when the Nazi party was created, that all came out of a sense of incredible uh, like rejection from the world onto these young men who had come back trained, armed, and together. That's a very different dynamic than what's happening now, where there's all these young men who have no social connections, who have no engagement with their political life, don't understand why they're upset, and start chasing these idiotic, uh, these idiotic speakers like Jordan Peterson or Andrew Tate or any of these scum to try to get them to explain what's going on with them. I think part of our role too, the three of us and broadly like the media ecosystem that we live in, is to try to bring people together and tell them actually you should be standing in solidarity solidarity with this person. You're upset about this thing, you're not being paid well enough, you're not being respected, you can't access the type of training or the type of lifestyle that you want. Guess what? There's seven people that look nothing like you and they have the same problem. Are you going to stand in solidarity with them? Are you going to read about what they're going through and maybe support them and have that reciprocal relationship? Are you going to see them in the street three months later and give them a big hug? 
Or are you going to isolate yourself and create this fantasy in your head that allows you to have completely illegitimate responses to them? That's why we don't see, in my opinion, that's why we don't see massive street brawls or stuff like the rally at Madison Square Garden that the Nazis did in the 30s or, you know, uh, big confrontations between uh, militant unions and the police. What we see instead is these individual violent actions happening around different cities in North America. Um, obviously, mass shootings are one of the most upsetting and one of the most observable ones, but we've seen things like this in Toronto, too, happening. Um, you know, incidents of, of street-level violence, and it's just, it's very individualized, it's very isolated, and it comes from a place of suffering. So I do think it's incumbent upon us to try to bring that back, that sense of community and that sense of shared camaraderie and solidarity. And we have the channels to do this, but we just need to be more creative and more, I don't know, more deliberate about it and, uh, frankly, more trusting. A lot of people walk around and they see the other and they think whether they look like them or they don't look like them, they're very skeptical of them. And I think that we just need to be more generous with each other on that level. Everything you just said is <laughs> like it's so home for me. Like that's, that is exactly what I'm talking about all of the time like uh, that that lack of community that damage that that creates that is massive and i and i feel like not enough people are are talking about the consequences of that and you see it so often like as a you know as a young person living in the city like i see so many people who i know who just they don't have anything to call a community they don't have any group of people to rely upon and then what happens when when you're in trouble you know what happens when people are struggling they, they have to go through that alone they don't have anywhere to turn for help and and, and this individual atomization the consequences that that's had can be seen everywhere there's so much like that that's a whole conversation that we we need to have we'll do a whole episode on that at some point um i see that we're uh coming towards the towards the end of our time so i just want to ask uh, what's next um what projects are you working on in the future and what should we look out for yeah so like i said uh, it's just hinting at it and i don't know what's going to happen but i have a meeting with somebody in a couple days about something that they're planning i have no idea what that is but i presume that it'll probably be something interesting um that they need cameras and reporters at I'm currently working on a story about the paramedics union and just like the understaffing levels of the paramedics. Um, so that should be out in the next week or two. Uh, I just finished up another interview and got a bunch of research today. And yeah, the, uh, my other, the other people at the company are variously working on some arts reporting, uh, some reporting on uh, police budgets. And yeah, we've already published two stories this week about uh, policing, one of them from an event. Uh, called Who Dies As Police Budgets Rise, and then another one uh, that was about, uh, was an event where the family of a young man who was tasered and assaulted by, sorry, wrongfully detained by the police in 2021, um, a, a report about that event. The first one was by Laura Proctor, our photojournalist, and the second one was by Jacob Pesaruk, our investigative journalist. But yeah, that's the type of stuff that's kind of always churning with us. And uh, frankly, I don't have track. I, I don't. I can't keep track of all of it, uh, which is a nice, <laughs> it's a, which is a good thing, as I'm sure you guys are familiar with being in organizing spaces or grassroots spaces. Uh, nobody can do everything, and everybody can only do so much. So having a good team of collaborators really helps a lot in terms of keeping the wheels turning. And uh, yeah, that's. Uh, that's what's going on there. And I will say to your audience, I am going to plug the, the Stripe 
if you want to support what we're doing, please go at, on the hoser.ca, click on the link that says become a hoser. You can donate <laughs> one time. You can donate like five cents, ten cents, a dollar, whatever. Uh, or you can become a recurring patron of ours, and it's very simple to sign up. We use Stripe, which is the same payment system that many, many places use. It's it's very secure and clean, easy. You don't need to sign up for anything extraneous. And um, yeah, check out our check out the Grinds next issue, which will probably be out at the end of February after the police budget. But yeah, we're always publishing on the Hoser. If you're in these sorts of journalistic spaces, especially if you're a young person, you can reach out and pitch us editor at thehoser.ca or frankly just like message me on Facebook message me on Twitter or Instagram I would say um, if I don't get back to you right away it's probably because it went into my the like weird little message request box that all of these platforms have which is frustrating because sometimes spam goes straight to my main one and then real people I can't I don't see it for a while but uh, yeah don't take it personally I always get back to everybody um, so yeah reach out if you're a media worker who feels like this speaks to you and if you're an organizer or part of a, a community that thinks that there's not enough attention being paid to one of the struggles that you're going through please reach out as well because that is the type of connection that we want to build and that's the stories we want to put out I can see Santiago jotting down your email because I feel like <laughs> he's one of those folks that's uh, he's got a list of like hundreds of story ideas so yeah, um, literally. he's just a pitch away always <laughs> and, yeah. and just a quick antidote before uh, you go and thank you so much for taking the time to come on and uh, we've got actually millions of questions for you as a budding <laughs> kind of media co-op ourselves but um describing what the grind was and and I said to Santiago it's kind of like now magazine and he kind of made a funny face I thought maybe I was aging myself he, I go you don't know now magazine and he's just like now who and I was like oh well, Kevin would love to hear that because I, I do see the parallels in what you're trying to do and with all their gloss and all their advertisers and vanity project and whatnot um yeah, it was not on Santiago's radar. And if there's folks that you're trying to appeal to, uh, it's probably Santiago. And 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 uh, <laughs> so I thought you might appreciate knowing that. So your your reach is out there. That is for sure. No, and, and I've had friends for sure who I, I had like a friend the other day who was like, he, he comes up to me. He's like, Santiago, I found this ma uh, this newspaper uh, at a subway station. I feel like you would love this. I'm like, I think I know exactly what you're going to tell me. He, he pulls out one of the coffees. So it's it's out there for sure. It's reaching the right people. Awesome. I'm really happy to hear that. Thank you for sharing that. I will share your links uh, back to the website, back to anything we can find with your name on it, and uh, so that the audience can check the show notes and, and keep uh, checking out your work and supporting what you do. And thank you awesome. for doing what you do and making space for for socialists and, and these stories that are so important. Thank you, and thank both of you for also doing this. I know it's a lot of work, but it is really, some of it is, uh, is really rewarding, so I appreciate it. Thank you, Kevin. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content, and if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.